morning, Christchurch. Thanks for joining us. I'm going to say a prayer for us. Dear Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that you are a God worth knowing and worth following. I pray that you would open our hearts to you. I pray that you would direct our minds, our thoughts, our thinking in the way that it should go, that we would know you better than we've ever known you before. I pray that you would help us to see Christ in a brand new way this morning. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In um, an introduction for one of his books, C.S. Lewis talks about his reason for writing the book. He makes it very clear that he isn't somebody who studies Hebrew or a higher critic or an ancient historian or an archaeologist, but that he writes for the unlearned about things in which he himself is unlearned. He said this, It often happens that two schoolboys can solve difficulties in their work for one another better than the master can. When you took the problem to a master, as we all remember, he was very likely to explain what you understood already to add a great deal of information which you didn't want and say nothing at all about the thing that was puzzling you. I've watched this from both sides of the net, for when as a teacher myself I have tried to answer questions brought me by pupils, I have sometimes after a minute seen that expressions settle down on their faces which assure me they were suffering exactly the same frustration which I had suffered from my own teachers. The fellow pupil can help more than the master because he knows less. The difficulty we want him to explain is one he's recently met. The expert met it so long ago that he's forgotten. He sees the whole subject by now in such a different light that he cannot conceive what is really troubling the pupil. He sees a dozen other difficulties which ought to be troubling him, but aren't. So he says, I write as an amateur to another, talking about difficulties I have met or lights I have gained. And that's how C.S. Lewis talks about his writing, as somebody who is an amateur trying to learn, a student working with other students to learn and understand things that are newly met or sometimes difficult to understand. And I love this approach because it's so helpful for us. Many times we come to big ideas of religion and faith and Christianity and we think either everybody knows so much and there's this vast gap between what I know and what they know that will never catch up or we don't even know where to begin. And so I love this idea that we're going to, as students, as pupils, approach these ideas together. We're going to go into our next section that Lewis prompts us to say, what do Christians believe? What makes Christianity different than any other religion or philosophy or life perspective or worldview? And at the heart of our understanding is right there at the core, Jesus Christ. And over the years, so many people have said different things, like, right, like, who is Jesus? Even Jesus himself asked his followers, like, who do people say that I am? And Freud said that Jesus was just a projection of our inner desires, and Marx went on to say that religion or Christianity was just a way of keeping the hungry masses quiet. Nietzsche said that Jesus taught a wimpish, wimpish religion that sapped energy of humankind ever since. And more recently, Richard Dawkins said that Jesus was a good man and that a man of his time had to be religious because everybody was. But I suspect that if he had the knowledge we have today, he probably would have been an atheist and he probably would have been a good man. For thousands of years, Jesus has been dismissed as a liar or a fake, or if he really did exist, he was a good man and a good teacher, but nothing more. C.S. Lewis says, if Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. 
There has been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years. A bit more makes no difference. And a theologian and scholar, N.T. Wright, went on to say, what we know about Christ is so unlike what we know about anybody else that we're forced to ask, as people evidently did at the time, who then is this? Who does he think he is, and who is he, in fact? People who listened to Christ at the time said things like, we've never heard anyone talking like this, and they didn't just mean his tone of voice or his skillful public speaking. Jesus puzzled people then, and he puzzled people now. Another writer said Jesus' impact was greater a hundred years after his death than during his life. It was greater still after 500 years. After a thousand years, his legacy laid the foundation for much of Europe. After 2,000 years, he has more followers in more places than ever. Who do we say Jesus is? It matters. It matters not only what we think of him, but who he is in our lives. And C.S. Lewis has famously said that he believes in God as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And I love Timothy Keller expands on this idea. He says, imagine trying to look directly in the sun to learn about it. You can't. It would burn your retinas, ruining your capacity to take it in. A far better way to learn about the existence, the power, the quality of the sun is to look at the world it shows you, to recognize how it sustains everything you see and enables you to see it. We should not try to look into the sun as it were, demanding irrefutable proofs for God. Instead, we should look at what the sun shows us, which account of the world has the most explanatory power to make sense of what we see in the world and in ourselves. We have a sense that the world is not the way it ought to be. We have a sense that we are very flawed and yet very great. We have a longing for love and beauty that nothing in this world can fulfill. We have a deep need to know meaning and purpose, which worldview best accounts for these things. So to know Christ, to really challenge ourselves to say, who do we say Christ is, what he said, what he did, what he means in our life, the best place for us to turn is the Gospels. Now, most of the Gospels, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're written probably 30 to 35 years after Christ has gone back to heaven. The latest Gospel, John, which was the last book written in the New Testament, it's written something like 60 years after Christ died and rose again. Within the lifetime of people who were in the area and their kids and their grandkids to be able to say, no, 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 that's not what happened. We have these accounts of what it looked like when Christ was here, what he said, what he did, how people interacted with him. Remember, a gospel is what God has done through Jesus Christ. It's news that brings joy and changes everything. But Paul reminds us it's also the power of God to all who believe power and life and health and growth. One of the first verses I remember learning as a young girl, as a child, was this. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It goes on to say in verse 17, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, God did more than just give us clues to understand the meaning of the universe and how things work and the purpose and who he is. He wrote himself into our history and our story. God became human and dwelled among us. 
What makes Christianity different than any other religion, any other philosophy, any other worldview is what we believe to be true about Jesus Christ. That God so loved the world that he sent Jesus into the world. That Jesus came in and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. But he didn't stay dead, he rose again. And in doing so, he changed not just our future, but the way in which sin and disease and death work on us. Now, this is so powerfully important because in the history of the context of it, people have said, well, this kind of, this changed over time, and that's not really what Jesus said at the time, and it kind of evolved as the church grew and wanted to, in the lifetime of people who were there when Christ lived on the earth, some of it before even Paul's letters were written were hymns and these ideas that people memorized and talked about God being Christ and dwelling among us. This isn't an idea that changed, but it's something that his earliest followers believed because they were there. They saw Christ die on a cross. They saw the empty tomb, and they saw him rise again. If somebody does something that nobody else could do, then what then do we do with that information? It's worth listening to. It's worth hearing and saying, is this a thinking, an idea that could change my life? Philip Yancey said, God shattered the inexorable law of sin and retribution by invading earth, absorbing the worst we had to offer, crucifixion, and then fashioning from that cruel deed the remedy for the human condition. Calvary broke up the logjam between justice and forgiveness. By accepting onto his innocent self all the severe demands of justice, Jesus broke forever the chain of ungraced. He's saying Jesus Christ took the worst the world had to offer and he refashioned it into something beautiful and loving. God doesn't have to love us, but he does. God doesn't have to forgive us, but he does. Forgiveness is a cost to somebody. It cost us nothing to be forgiven, but it cost Christ everything because on the cross, Christ gave his life for you and I. And he took this picture of suffering and shame and he changed it into this beautiful symbol of hope and love and so c.s lewis says the central christian belief is that christ's death has somehow put us right with god and given us a fresh start we believe that the death of christ is just that point in history at which something absolutely unimaginable from outside shows through into our own world We're told that Christ was killed for us, that his death has washed our sins, and that by dying, he disabled death itself. That's Christianity. That is what has to be believed. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Many of us have had religious experiences. We've heard all the religious things and the religious words, but we've really never met Jesus Christ. We've met religious people but we've never heard anything about the compelling truth and powerful love of Jesus Christ that connects in our hearts. We've grown up learning about the rules and the do this and the don't do that. I read an article and it was from 20 different people who left faith and left Christianity and the reason they left. And to a person, every single person's reason was connected to something that a religious person did that hurt them that somehow disrupted something of their well-being, and it had nothing to do with Jesus Christ. 
We've learned a ton about religious behavior and religious rules, and we've missed Jesus Christ. But what does Jesus tell us in John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he said, be more religious? No, he said, for God so loved the world that he sent Christ into the world that we might know him and we might be saved. It isn't religion that saves us. It's only Jesus Christ. It's not doing more good deeds and good works that make us right with Christ. God, only Jesus Christ can do that. Which is a miracle because none of us get it right all of the time. If it was contingent upon us getting it right, nobody could be saved. There's a reason why we needed Christ because the law didn't get us to where we needed to be. It only showed us where we fall short, where we mess up. It's not any human attainment or obedience to the law that leads to salvation, but it rests exclusively on the righteousness from God that is given to us through Jesus Christ. No amount of law-keeping, self-improvement, discipline, religious effort can make us right with God. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Because religion is what I can do. It's what you can do, right? It's all of our effort. But our faith is in what Jesus Christ has already done. By grace, we have been saved by faith. Not by our works, but by the work of Jesus Christ. This is at the core of our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The core of our belief as, Jesus, as Christians. God treats us better than we deserve. He makes us whole. He heals us. He forgives us. He redeems us. He restores us. He makes us new. And he does it through faith confident belief in who Jesus Christ is, this assurance of things that we long for and hope for, and the certainty of belief, a way of knowing God. We believe in Jesus Christ, that through an act of grace larger than we can comprehend, Jesus Christ came into the world to be God with us. He gave his life for us on the cross for everything that we have done wrong or ever would do wrong for our sins, our mistake, our guilt, our brokenness. The Son of God became the Son of Man. He took on himself that which is ours in such a way that he transfers to us that which is his. What is in his nature becomes ours through grace. Christ came into the world and became human for us. But think about how powerful this is. God wrote himself into the story. He became human. He identified with the oppressed and the hurting. He knows what it's like to be overlooked. He knows what it's like to be ridiculed. He knows what it's like to be beaten and abused. He reversed places with the marginalized and the poor. And through Jesus Christ, we know the heart of God, that Christ received what is ours, and he exchanged it what is worst in us for what is best in him. He came to earth to live, and he lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died. And because of what Jesus Christ has done, we know the heart and divine capacity of God to save, to save all those who believe. There is no life that God can't change. There's nothing so broken that Christ can't fix it. There's nothing so ugly that Christ can't make it beautiful. There's nothing so damaged that Christ can't heal. 
and the wonderful, incredibly powerful, compelling news of the gospel is this. God cares about you, your life, your heart, your future, your potential. They matter to God. You aren't a hassle to him. You aren't an inconvenience or a nuisance that he just has to deal with. You're not too much for God. God loves us. God wants to be known by us. God came into the world to be with us because we couldn't get to him any other way. God didn't say, first you get it figured out. Clean everything up, and then we'll sit down and have a chat together. He moves towards us before we even knew he existed, before we even knew that we would need help in this mess of life. God already prepared a way for us to know him through Jesus Christ. Because God so loved the world that Christ came and gave his life that all who believe in him will be saved. This belief we have in Jesus Christ, it becomes the core of our faith that we center our life on. It becomes that core of who we are because if Christ really came and died and rose again, it changes everything. Nobody can do that. Nobody has done that. Christianity isn't just another set of rules or a list of do this, don't do that. It's not based on my record. It's based on the record of Jesus Christ. It's not saying, look at all the good things that I've done. I didn't do the bad things. I did the right things. I have this good track record. I'm saved. Christianity is just the opposite. I have a horrible track record. I know what I'm capable of. We can all put on whatever pretty shiny exteriors we want, and we can hide damaged souls on the inside. We know what we've done. Nobody needs to stand up and convince us it's there. Even the Apostle Paul, the Saint Paul struggled. He said, I don't understand what I do. What I do, I, what I want to do, I do not do. What I hate, I do. I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. He said, what a miserable person I am. Who's going to free me from this nonsense, nonsense that dominates my life? Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we've all experienced this. Just think about your life. Don't even go big and existential. Keep it simple. When's the last time you tried to change a bad habit? You have all the best intentions in the world, right? I'm going to break this habit. I got willpower. I got self-control. I got discipline. I'm going to do better, try harder. I'm going to work towards a certain goal or way of life. Or I'm going to be a good person. I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm not going to yell, right? The second you set out with this good intention, this good goal, this good behavior, or this change of habit, there's something else at work. There's something inside you that wants to do the very opposite of the thing you said you're trying to do. You're trying to diet. You do good for like a week, right? You could do, even for a few weeks, you're solid, and then what happens? You see the thing you know you're not supposed to eat, and all you want to do is eat that thing. And you have all of these great self... Um, we're good at deceiving and convincing ourselves, right? We justify any behavior. Well, why do they get to eat it? Why can't I eat it if they get to eat it? What happens? We want the thing we know we shouldn't want. We do the thing we said we wouldn't do. We have this. And Paul says, here's the answer. It's not just try harder. It's not just do better. It's not just work more. It's 
solely in Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis put it this way. The ordinary idea which we all have is that we have a natural self with various desires and interests. We know something called morality or decent behavior has a claim on the self. We're all hoping that when the demands of morality and society have been met, the poor natural self will still have some chance, some time to get to know, get on with its own life and do what it likes. In fact, we're very like an honest man paying his taxes. He pays them, but he does hope there will be enough left over for him to live on. It says, but the Christian way is different, both harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want just this much of your time and this much of your money and this much of your work so that your natural self can have the rest. I want you, not your things. I have come not to torture your natural self. I will give you a new self instead. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires, not just the ones you think wicked, but the ones you think innocent, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. What he's saying is this is how we normally approach, approach God. I'll give you this part of myself, this part of my life, this part of who I am, but I want this little piece just left over. You can't have this. We compartmentalize our relationship with God. You can have this, but not this. You can have this section of my heart, but not this. I'll let you have access in this space over here, but ooh, this is like a no-go zone. You can't have this. And we section off our life with God. We only go so far. We give him the bits and the pieces. And Lewis says that's not what God's asking for. What God wants is not just the pieces and the parts, but the whole of it. All of our hearts, all of our lives, all of our minds, all of our strength. Why? Not because he has some mean, nefarious plot in mind, not to torture us, not to make things harder or punish us in some way. No, Christ already took all the pain and punishment on himself. The hardest work that needed to be done, Christ already did. When God wants this from us, it's because he wants to give us a new life, a new self. But for that to happen, for the new start, we have to clear out the old. My sisters and I used to love a show called What Not to Wear. And what happened was somebody would get recommended for the show, and the two people, Stacy and Clinton, would come on, and they'd go take all of their clothes from their old wardrobe, and they'd fly them out to New York, and they'd hang everything up, and they would literally throw away all of the old stuff. The outdated stuff, the didn't fit stuff, the stuff that nobody their age should be wearing, whatever the context was, they would get rid of all of it, and they would have to watch them put their stuff in the garbage can. But the flip side was, then they got whatever amount of money it was to go on this spending spree and rebuild a wardrobe. To get the new, they had to throw away the old. And the same is true in our life. To access the new, the new life, the new style, the new us that God created us to be, there are old things that have to be thrown away. It's not just throwing away one piece or two pieces. It's saying the whole piece needs God. It's not just opening one window, it's all the windows. It's not just cracking open the door, it's flinging it wide open and letting God in. And Lewis says the almost impossible hard thing is to hand over your whole self to Christ. But it's far easier than what we're all trying to do instead. For what we're trying to do is remain what we call ourselves, our personal happiness centered on money or pleasure or ambition and hoping, despite this, to behave honestly, chastely, and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us we cannot do. If I am a grain field, all the cutting will keep the grass less, but it won't produce wheat. 
if I want wheat, I must have it plowed up and resown. When Christ is growing in us, we all have the potential to grow and develop and mature and accomplish incredible things. When Christ is at work in us, we have the potential for health and growth. When Christ comes first, we have all that we need to do this life well. He becomes our foundation for who we are and what we do. It does not make life easy. It does not make life perfect, but it does make life doable. When loving God comes first, we love him with the best of ourselves and our heart and our thoughts and our soul. We're always pushing away the junk, the garbage that shouldn't be there and opening up more space and more space to God. It means God gets access to me, all of me, my heart, not just the parts that I want, but all of me, all of me first, everything else over there. And what we understand is that when we love God in this way, it helps us at loving everyone else. Loving isn't easy. It's an action more than it's a feeling. We like when the good feelings are there. It's great when the good feelings are there. Life is wonderful. But love is in the hard, worn down, tired, grouchy, I have nothing left to give moments. Christ in me is greater than anything else. And the love that I choose, the action I choose, is not even because I want to or I feel like it, but I act my way into being the person that Christ says I have the potential to be. We keep acting in loving ways because it's how Christ treats us first. The more time we spend with God, the more he calls out what is best, unique, and gifted in each and every one of us. Loving God becomes that foundation for our life, and it shows up in our behavior, our choices, and our life, which we're going to dig into next week. Timothy Keller said it this way, if Jesus is your center and Lord and you fail him, he will forgive you. We're all being pursued by guilt because we have an identity, and there must be some standard to live up to by which we get that identity. Whatever you base your life on, you have to live up to that. Jesus is the only Lord you can live for who died for you, who breathed his last breath for you. Said if there is a God who created you, then the deepest chambers of your soul simply cannot be filled by anything less. That's how great the human soul is. If Jesus is the creator Lord, then by definition, nothing could satisfy you like he can. Even if you're successful, even the most successful careers and families cannot give the significance, the security, and the affirmation that the author of love and glory can. He said, everybody has to live for something. Whatever that something is becomes Lord of your life, whether you think that way or not. And Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, he will fulfill you completely. If you fail him, he will forgive you eternally. The question then becomes that we ask ourselves, who do we believe Jesus Christ to be? And in the same thought, what really is Lord in our life? What have we based our life on? What are we trying to live up to? Because as Keller has said, and Lewis said, as Christ said, as all these ideas have driven us to, there's only one Lord that we can live for who will fulfill us completely and forgive us eternally. 
There's only one Lord that when we give him our hearts, the good, the bad, the clean parts, the messy parts, the ugly parts, the good parts, he loves us wholly. Christ stands not waiting to condemn, but to forgive. He isn't waiting to shame you. He's waiting to love you and call you his own. Christ isn't waiting to catch you doing something bad so we can go, aha, I knew it. You really are a terrible person. Now everybody else is going to know it too. The Christ we know is waiting, hand reached out to help guide you into a life of goodness and peace. Christ loves you. He invites you into an incredible relationship with God where we can find meaning and purpose for our life. Is this the Christ you know? Is this the Christ that you believe in? Have you met this Christ before? Because when we believe in him, when we let him into our life, everything changes. I love what Lewis says. God doesn't love us because we're good. God will make us good because he loves us. When we believe in him, that's where his good work begins. When we believe in Jesus Christ, all our hope lies there. Hope for today and hope for the future. Christianity isn't just a cultural ethic or legalism. It's a relationship to Jesus Christ because Christ is who he says he is. He did what he said he would do. We can follow him. We can know him. We can build our lives on him. We can trust that he really wants what is best and right for us. His wisdom, his friendship, his guidance will always lead us in the way that we should go. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You know what's so amazing about these words of Christ? They're simple enough that we can teach them to our children, and yet they are complex and challenging enough that when Christ originally said these words in the Gospel of John, he was speaking to a highly educated religious man. No matter where we are in our life, Christ can do a good work in us. Whether we are beginners or we are advanced in our years, whether we are just starting out or we've never, we're meeting Christ for the 100th time, there's no place in our life that we can't meet Christ and be incredibly influenced for good and changed by him. I invite you, open your heart to Christ today. Meet him. Let him guide you into the life he's created you for. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that we would meet Christ in a way that we have not met him before. I pray where we've been let down, disappointed, or hurt by religion, we would be reminded of the goodness of Jesus Christ, who has not left us or forsaken us. I pray that you would help us to know you in the kind of way that the old is gone and we will be new creations in Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that as we know you and grow with you, that your goodness and your grace would dwell in us. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for him coming into the world. Thank you for his life and death and sacrifice that we might know you. Help us, I pray. Direct us in the way that we should go. In Jesus' name, amen.